Before we begin our final episode of 2023, please give us 20 seconds of your time as we thank you for listening to our episodes thus far. We couldn't be prouder of what we have achieved in the months since we've been online. In 2024, we will work tirelessly to make everything even bigger for you. Food should not be a problem, but a solution. This is Tomorrow's Bite Podcast, the podcast where Andres and I are diving with stunning guests into their stories, challenges and opportunities, all backed by food, allowing us all to get inspired, gain knowledge and grow. And today we talk about... To meat will, for example, not necessarily replace your you know, high-end uh, hand-cut Iberica ham, but on the other hand, it might replace some of the very intensive factory farming. Eventually, cultivated meat um, should be equal in price to conventional meat, if not cheaper even. You don't need big fields with cows, for example, walking around. You don't need all the ingredients to, to actually feed the cows or feed the pig. One of the biggest issues for the industry, of course, is... Uh, I think it's hard to say now what will be the best in the end, because we haven't really seen it in, in a real full-scale facility, of course. If you use a immortalized cell line, you could make a almost indefinite amount of burgers out of that one cell. Whether you should is another question. Actually, they're working on putting small-scale calcium meat facilities in small-scale farms. And what is your biggest fear? I think the biggest fear or a challenge there is um, cultivated meat seemed like a dream a few years ago but in the present days is every time more of a reality that is why we enjoy talking with Leo Grunewegen a cultured meat expert who came to Tomorrow's Bites to explain us how does this innovation work their benefits the hurdles and what impact we'll have in the current world. Please enjoy this conversation as much as we did. So welcome Leo to our podcast. Can you tell your well our listeners that just clicked on this episode or yeah that they maybe <clears throat> did something else or that they found out this in the meantime how important is it for them to stick and listen to the topic or to this topic that we are going to discuss yeah of course no problem i think today is going to be particularly interesting because because i think we're going to be talking for a large extent about cultured meat alternative proteins and sort of new ways of uh, feeding the population in the future which is something I think is, is very important for, for everyone and must be, must be really interesting to, to listen to and, and hear for these insights. And in particular, why is this topic so important for you? Yeah, so, so I've been actively working in, in food tech since, since 2018. Uh, that is when I learned about sort of alternative proteins and specifically cell-based meat uh, or cultivated meat, which, which is really interesting. I think it's a matter of actually being able to, to feed the population, of course, in the future. Uh, it is, of course, interesting regarding sort of sustainability. Sustainability is a big issue. 
the way we're feeding ourselves currently is just not, you know, doesn't work for the future. It doesn't work 50 years from now. It doesn't work 100 years from now. It might also not work five years from now. So there's really a, a urgent need to sort of change habits, change perceptives, and uh, actually do something good and, and make a change. And, and that's why I sort of jumped into this. And what are the personal drivers behind your interest in food? Because yeah, when, when you said you, you started your job or your job journey, more on the medical side first. Yeah, so I basically spent the first uh, 10-ish years of my career in, in pharma life sciences. Um, ranging from sort of bigger pharmaceutical companies to actually later on to cell therapy companies, which come quite close actually to cultured meat companies because you use cells in both sort of processes. Um, and for me, there's sort of this insight suddenly when I when I heard about this, like this actually makes a bigger impact. It, it's not something you make a medicine for a few people, a few thousand people. This is food which everybody in the world consumes and has you know, by default, a much larger impact if, if things if things are done right. How do you go from growing, I mean, a, a gram of chicken, for example, in a laboratory on a small petri dish, that is relatively straightforward. But to go to, say, a 10,000 kiloton factory, uh, that's a whole different ballgame, of course. And, and the only way that culture meat becomes successful and becomes available to consumers in the next couple of years is if we can overcome scaling challenges if you can overcome any issues with with pricing with availability and with regulatory hurdles of course um, the scaling in itself is uh, is a particularly challenging course if you start scaling up bioreactors um, cells will be um, having much much more stress within the environment so putting or using larger bioreactors actually puts more shear stress on cells which um, could lead to damaging of cells and cell death. Um, so that's one issue. So how can we scale up bioreactors from a petri dish to five liter to 50 liter to 500 liter to 50,000 liter? One big challenge. Um, second big challenge is how are we feeding these cells? So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we were still using FBS as a media, in the media for cell culturing. FBS is fetal bovine serum. So that is something which, if you look at it from sort of a, a cost perspective and an ethical sense, is something you do not want to use in your culture meat product because it's an animal product. Um, by now, luckily, a lot of different companies have already been able to produce media solutions that are FBS-free, so that are fully free of animal, animal proteins or animal sources, which is good. Um, but they... Uh, at the moment, still looking for a way to make this media solution, of course, affordable at large scale again. Uh, so those are two two issues: is the the bioreactor itself or the scaling? You have the media, and then of course another big issue is um, looking at structured versus unstructured produce. So it's relatively straightforward to make a, a mincemeat, a sausage, a hamburger, but it's much harder actually to use scaffolding to make a fully sort of three D tissue. A, a full entrecote, a steak, uh, a whole chicken breast. Because there, you need to create much more textures, and it's much more much more difficult to make actually these scaffolds to grow into entire steaks and products. Um, last thing, of course, or there's a few more things is um, regulatory approvals. Um, you've probably seen a few regulatory approvals over the past few years, um, starting with Singapore. Um, but if you look, for example, at Europe, there's no regulatory approval yet. And we also know that regulatory approval 
will take a while after dossier submission. So that is one 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 other issue. And then, of course, as as you see in many industries, it's scale, scaling. Um, scaling is expensive. So how are companies able to you know get the capex um, right and and make sure actually they have the invested funds actually build these large facilities in the future? So those are sort of all tying together. Uh, which are the hurdles for the industry, um, but also the challenges that are slowly, step by step, being being overcome by the various companies. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, looking into this, it's uh, I believe it's upside upside foods or or good meat. The one or just meat. One of these companies in the U.S. that uh, were approved uh, in the U.S. to start selling. Uh, uh, their products and one of them a couple of weeks or even a month ago they promoted that they had they were starting to to, to build like their first big factory so like they were like scaling no they're going to to produce massively that was the idea their 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 meat is i mean if they are doing it it's because there must be ways now to scale the 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 yeah, the cell cultured meat that was, and that that was one of the main hurdles. That you, have have you looked into this? Do you know how are they doing it? Yeah, so so I can't really say specifically how they are doing it, of course, because they have all kind of of their own sort of special ways of doing it. I mean, generally speaking, companies are figuring it out step by step, uh, and it's becoming more and more affordable. Of course, one thing you also have to keep in mind that if I announce, say, today that I'm going to build a facility, then it is still a few years away, actually, before it's fully up and running and fully scaled up, of course, because I'm also going to do that normally if I would set up a, a new factory. Uh, I would do it in phases. So first phase is, is, is sort of your, your initial part, and you expand and expand it over a few years. Um, so... In many situations, you would have to slowly build up the facility, and it will take a few years to be up and running, and it will not immediately produce, you know, the full full output. Uh, and those years actually also give them time to even get things smoothed out to get these production systems up and running. Um, previous previous pilot facilities, you know, might not hundred percent translate to what is actually being done in a full scale facility. Um, and, and there you're going to just see some things that they will be overcoming in the next few years. And those learnings will, will be able to get their prices down um, tremendously, I think. Yeah. Okay, now looking again into the process itself, can you just take any cell from an animal Can you uh, to, to do this? Or there are different types of cells that you need to use? Yeah, for sure there's different types of cells. Uh, first... There's different ways of looking at this. Well, I mean, you got in an end product normally in meat that you eat, whether it's whether it's a, a cultured meat product or actual normal meat product. You normally have a mix of uh, fat cells and muscle cells. So that's one thing always. So you need to be able to grow both. If you want to sort of mimic or create an entrecote, you need both fat cells and muscle cells, of course. But otherwise, you never get the same kind of product. And then you have different sort of cells. Uh, which, which are used in specific wording. So you have, for example, different types of stem cells. Uh, this could be, for example, mesenchymal stem cells. It could be immortalized cell lines. There's all kind of different types of cells that have different properties and by themselves are either more suitable or less suitable for, for cultured meat production. 
Uh, there's quite some companies trying to work with immortalized cell lines, which has the benefit of being able to multiply and grow indefinitely. That's why they're called immortalized. But there's also some other companies actually using, for example, uh, mesenchymal stem cells. And they do well as well. They have good growth rates. But in those cases where you don't use immortalized cell lines, you would actually still need to do a biopsy every couple of months. So you need to go back to that one cow or that one pig that's standing in the fields every couple of months to take a new biopsy to get a new generation of cells. And their companies are making, making their own decisions on what they think is best. Um, but that would, of course, also have an influence on their, on their, on their process, on the production. Um, and then another thing is some of these cells grow uh, adherent. So they need to adhere to a surface to be able to grow. Other cell types, like many of the immortalized cell lines, actually they grow in, in full suspension. So they can be loose into a bioreactor, flowing around together with the media and the other liquids. Um, and they often seen as potentially more cost efficient uh, in the growing process. And there's just going to be this, this trade-off for companies as in what cells they prefer, what cells they think will make the best product. Because um, they will go back to the type of cell you're using. So technically speaking, uh, and this is in a way, well, theoretically speaking, I should say, if you use a immortalized cell line, you could make a almost indefinite amount of burgers out of that one cell. Um, whether you shoot is another question, but that is that, that is possible. So what you would do with other cell lines, so if you would use a normal mesenchymal cell line, for example, um, then normally most companies would probably go for um, 20 to 60 sort of growth phases before they would harvest uh, new cells. So it ranges from a few burgers to maybe many, um, but also to make a burger, um, or a sausage, you need millions and millions and millions of cells. And one cell, of course, is, is not nearly enough to actually create something. So you would need to harvest, you know, millions, actually billions of cells to actually create these, these burgers of the future. And finally, going in this technical part, how do you differentiate the cells into muscle, fat, and other tissues? Yeah, so the differentiation of, of cells is actually uh, rather complicated. Uh, and that is something that we always leave up to, to, to the scientists that are much smarter than, uh, than you and me, probably. Um, there's different ways of sort of inducing differentiation in cells. So it has to do with the, with the cell itself, depends a bit on the type of cell, but also on the, on the growth stage to add and actually the type of media you're feeding them. Uh, and that's that's a way you can sort of manipulate a cell becoming, for example, muscle or becoming a, a fat cell. And then I'm wondering if we put this next to a beef burger, right? Will it be the same on nutrition values in the end? Um, generally speaking, yes, it will be um, a close to same nutritional value. You're using, again, um, both a normal beef burger and a cultured beef burger will have the same ingredients, which is muscle and fat cells. Um, so technically speaking, the nutrition value will be the same, if not close to the same, uh, with potentially the benefit of a cultured meat product being the fact that you can select the best cells for your production. Uh, and you can be, in a way, much more picky and potentially 
by doing the right sort of selection process, actually pick the most healthy cells that have potentially better properties and actually make your product more or less um, healthy or nutrition. Um, of course, you've got also full control of the ratio. So, so it's very easy to say, I'm going to make my hamburger 80% muscle, 20% fat. And you will always have it in that, in that solution. And it is slightly harder, of course, if you use a natural product that is just comes straight from an animal, uh, or if you cut the anthracote from, from a cow, um, there's always a bit of a change in, um, in the values of, of, of sort of the fat versus the muscle cells and nutrients. And in a cultured meat process, you can really uh, standardize that so that's always the same. Um, and that could have its benefits. Yeah. The well-known problem is that currently the price of lab-grown meat is too high. And I saw that the predictions are made that it will match with conventional meat um, around 2030. Uh, what is your view on this? Yeah, I think that's that's actually a view that is shared probably across the industry, actually, uh, as, as the, the current sort of reasonable goal towards sort of a, a, a comparative price. Um it's hard to say exactly whether it will be reached in 2029, 20, 2030, 20, or 2031. 20, of course, that's always very hard to say. But I fully support sort of the idea that eventually cultivated meat um, should be equal in price to conventional meat, if not cheaper even. Um, the production process of, of cultured meat, of course, is, is pretty different from conventional meat. But there's also a lot of ways to say if you actually do this at scale in very large facilities, for example, there's actually a lot of reasons why it could be cheaper if, even. And there's much less, much fewer inputs that you need. You don't need big fields with cows, for example, walking around. You don't need all the ingredients to, to actually feed the cows or feed the pigs. Uh, it's less labor intensive as well. So actually, now we're first working towards from something that's very highly priced to something that's going down in price rapidly. And and in the future, even if you go beyond 2030, we might be able to create a product that is uh, sustainable, nutritious, and actually potentially more affordable as compared to conventional meat sources. What is the biggest misconception about culture meat? Um, it's just, a, in many cases, I think it's just a lack of knowing what it is. Uh, if you say cultured meat, you know, what is that? Uh, how is it made? Is it made in a bioreactor? Is it made in a laboratory? Is it a fancy cow that gets massaged? Is it a fish that's in a farm? There's a lot of different kind of ways of, that people look at it, and people just don't always know what it means. I think that is a bit the misconception. Some people are also thinking, is it a meat alternative? Like, is it a vegan product, for example? Um, and, and that's just a problem that. For the industry, something that we need to overcome, and that's a, a big, quite a big piece of sort of um, consumer information that is just needed to actually educate people on what are the differences. I mean, what is normal meat? What is, you know, a vegan, vegetarian alternative, and what is cell-based or cultured meat? Um, and people just haven't seen it, they haven't touched it, they haven't felt it, they haven't eaten it. So many of them just don't know what it is exactly. Um, and people need to understand that. Governments need to understand that. And in the future, people that go to a supermarket or a retailer 
or a restaurant will also need to be able to see or know and understand what is the difference in, in what they're eating. So I had last Wednesday a call with a person that interviewed a scientist that did a research on consumer perception on lab-grown meat. Um, actually, if the people are open to try it. He found out that the ones disliking the lab-grown meat product were led by emotion. And an emotional reaction towards a product is one of the strongest, as we know. It is how the product makes us feel. And for them, the feeling of disgust thing came up. The terms also influence this, like the word use of synthetic meat. And we were wondering, how would you tackle consumer perception if you hear this? Yeah, so that is a problem that where some, quite some people in the industry are working on is, is this consumer percept- perception of it. I mean, generally speaking, food is, has cultural links, it has flavor links, it has memory links, it has perceptions, and, and it's quite hard for people to sort of move because there's so much things are involved with the food you eat and how you've been eating it for the last years. Um, I think if you look at the the idea of like, yeah, what is it? Is it, is it lab-grown? Is it cell-based? Is it something like that? There, there really is, um, again, this awareness, like I was saying, where we need to change in the education where, for example, a, a cell-agri-Europe uh, society um, should put effort into actually educating the people, educating the governments on what it is, how it works, uh, what is made of, and also explain them. It's not something actually strange. It's not synthetic. Uh, it's not a you know chemical. It's not a plastic. It's actually a cell taken from an animal, and that is grown into a different environment than you used to. Normally, the cell grows within the cow, which basically in that case is also bioreactor. And now, actually, you grow it inside of a clean environment uh, where it can grow faster, better, quicker, and cleaner. And these perceptions and, and how that is made is, is something that really needs to be addressed with the public. And at some point, uh, once we get closer to real commercialization, of course, on a larger scale, um, really needs sort of awareness campaigns. Currently, we are already facing in Europe certain uh, concern racing around the uh, meat. This was shown with the early... Italy ban, like that they were the first ones to ban it. Uh, although I think the ban was uh, removed lately uh, because it was against some sort of regulation. And uh, although now Romania is, you know, is, a, is the next one that has like looking into, into banning this. And I just want we wanted to comment like this, the reasons with you and hear the, the answer to this. So for example, one of the reasons that they give is the impact on the agriculture. So they have expressed concern about the, how these lab-grown meat can have an impact on the traditional farming. And they worry that this could, of course, lead to a decrease in, of demand, uh, in demand for meat from animals. And therefore, that would harm the farming and the ranchers' uh, jobs. So what... How do you how do you see this? Yeah, it's it's a pretty complicated question, actually, with many different aspects into it. Um, as the first thing, yeah, of course, everybody read a few months ago that that Italy was planning on banning it. Um, in the end, it didn't go through. Um, but there's there's especially in a country like Italy um, where they rely sort of heavily on a real food culture with specific uh, meat products and hams being made in specific regions with specific certifications. 
and they are very built up um, around traditions of, of agriculture, traditions of making high quality products, of course. Uh, and then many of the often smaller farmers are very protective, of course, of their, their livelihoods, which they should be, of course, uh, and, and, and quite um, careful with seeing what is going to be next. Um, as a premise, I think small-scale farmers, of course, they need to make a living. They need to grow their, their products, their crops. And I don't think culture meat is going to replace farming altogether, of course. Um, and there's going to be a bit of a mix between cultured meat in the future, uh, conventional meat and um, plant-based protein. What you would also see, and that is something what I personally would like to see, if cultured meat is not necessarily taking away from the high-quality meat products. Um, cultured meat will, for example, not necessarily replace your you know, high-end uh, hand-cut Iberico ham. But on the other hand, it might replace some of the very intensive factory farming. So you keep your cows on the pastures in the small local uh, villages, the small local farms, no problem. They make high quality produce. What culture meat could replace is the intensive factory farming where you see 10,000 pigs in very small little uh, cages where you have 5,000 cows on a feedlot. And I think actually those products are what culture meat should be targeting. It's it's the mass production of, um, in some cases, low-quality meat, uh, which is grown very unsustainable in very large quantities with often poor living conditions. Uh, and I think that is the, the key target for culture meat, actually, to replace, specifically replace or reduce the consumption of that part of the, of the meat industry um, and not necessarily go after the small farmers. In some cases, actually also, and there's a few companies working on it. Uh, there's one, for example, in the Netherlands. Um, actually, they're working on putting small-scale cultured meat facilities in small-scale farms. So, for example, if you say you have a stable at the moment in your farm, um, you take the cows out or you take some of the cows out, and actually you put bioreactors in that infrastructure because you have the infrastructure already anyway. So you put the bioreactors in the infrastructure. You use maybe some of your land to grow some of the ingredients. And that way, actually, the current farmer can become a farmer of the future by actually becoming part of this, say, potential protein transition process and actually become a cultured meat farmer instead of a conventional you know, meat farmer. Uh, and that could be quite interesting as well. It... Um, it ties again, uh, and, and that is the thing you will see in some countries, uh, like you're saying, Italy. It ties into cultural aspects in many countries. Um, and that is really going to be a tough one in some cases as to how to um, talk to governments, how to talk to farmer in initiatives, how to talk to um, these kind of organizations, say, like, this is what we're trying to do, uh, why we're doing it, of course. Uh, culture meat is not being made to replace farming, but it's being made to maybe replace the, the, the bad farming practices, but it's also mainly there to actually make sure that we can feed the population in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, that we grow food more sustainable so we actually have a planet in the future. So they shouldn't see it really as a, as a, as a threat or as a, um, as a challenge to their practice, but actually as a solution that we need together as part of our global sort of sustainability initiative. 
it's really nice that we take care of the people that can lose their jobs and that we come up with uh, initiatives, as you were mentioned, Leo. But innovation normally comes with the destroying of jobs and creation of jobs. Like when when the car was invented, before car was invented, a lot of people would go with horses, uh, car like these uh, stagecoaches with horses, and there was people that was living by selling these horses, by by breeding them, by selling them. And of course, these people lost their business when almost nobody went with horses anymore. And and, and now it would be even impressive that we find people that, that their job is breeding horses to be uh, put into stagecoaches. Well, what I mean with this is that jobs are destroyed and jobs are created. And that is also how we work as a as society. We look into the necessities of any moment. We put solutions. Those solutions make that some problems disappear, but destroys jobs, but maybe creates another problems that also have to have to be covered. And I believe that putting the destruction of of of, of, of your positions as an excuse to not apply to not make an innovation real is I mean counter goes against our nature of trying to solve problems, in my opinion. I think that's very right. Um, of course, there were quite some issues as well back in the, say, early 1900s, before, before the early, no, yeah, early 1900s, before the cars. Uh, cities like New York, London, Amsterdam were full with horses, um, but also full with the waste of horses, full with dead horses. Um, so... Sometimes we need solutions to make things better, and the car for sure. I mean, without the cars, we wouldn't have neither of us three would have been here today if the cars were not invented, uh, and all the other inventions, of course, in the past decade, past hundred years. So we need to change things. Uh, I think for sure, also the the horses are happy that they don't need to work so hard anymore, and they can just stand in the field, drive around a few times a day. Um, and it's it's a matter of, of progress on one end. Like we're trying to do things that are better than previously. So you go from, from the horse to the car and from the car you go to, well, a gas car to electric car to even better things. So I think we all agree that, in, that progression is needed, uh, innovation is needed, but we do have to be mindful with the impact it creates on others. Um, but that, that gives also opportunities. I mean, like I said, farmers could put potentially bioreactors in their facility. We can train them, re-educate. Uh, they can go from being a meat farmer to becoming a, you know, they can start also growing uh, more crops or something, more grains, more other things. So, so there's a lot of opportunities there and doesn't need to be 100% sort of black and white as to, you know, you're doing it right, I'm doing it wrong or the other way around. Um, so we should find a way to sort of do this in a in a relatively smooth process where everybody um, gets a better environment. And then there was also this other thing that uh, the assumption was made that it is a more risky well, product. Uh, but I am actually wondering what are the potential safety risks associated with cultured meat? Yeah, so... That is something I've heard before. People are asking, like, okay, is it safe to eat? Are there any weird contaminants in there? Any chemicals in there? Can it go? Is there something that can go wrong with the cells? From what I've read and I've seen, and the research I've read is that generally speaking, 
culture meat is actually safer and cleaner than conventional meat sources. A good example is if you nowadays you eat a, you eat a piece of fish, for example, um, chance is that there's too much mercury in it, that there's high levels of lead in it, there's microplastics in it, all kinds of things in there, antibiotics, um, that are actually not going to be in a cultured meat product. A cultured meat product is made in a relatively clean, sterile environment. There's no other contaminations there besides what we actually put in there. So if, if as a company, I'm putting in, of course, the, the cells, the fat cells, the muscle cells, the media solution, you can put in some flavoring, of course. There's nothing else that goes in there. And it's made in a clean environment, free of bacteria, free of plastics and so on. So actually, you're making a product that is cleaner and safer for people to consume uh, with less, uh, less risk, actually. And um, what are the potential health benefits of cultured meat? Yeah, so, um, well, besides the, the one I just mentioned, as in it has less contaminants in there, like the antibiotics and the high levels of lead, for example, and mercury. So that's one thing. Uh, besides that, it is basically a, a piece of steak is a piece of steak, of course, whether it's made in a laboratory or made in a cultured meat setting or made in a slaughterhouse i mean it's the same end product um, so then necessarily if you look at face value it's the same product so it will have roughly the same nutritional values and your health benefits or drawbacks are going to be roughly the same um, with the exception of course of things that you see now in meat production where i would go back to um, you know the antibiotics that are fed to the animals to the other issues that you get there so generally speaking it is not necessarily um, a product that is healthy at face value for you as a consumer um, but it's healthier overall for the entire system because it has much better input resources you would have um, a easy way of producing it the environmental impact of production is much lower so in that way it's, it's much healthier of course because we damage the planet damage ourselves less uh, but the piece of steak is still a piece of steak, of course, uh, and you'll still have your calories in there. Now we move a bit to the to your leadership in this sense in this in the in the sector. And what is the most exciting thing about your work right now? So I think um, the most exciting part about culture meat in general and and the industry is it's so. I mean, I jumped into it in, in, in 2018 and it was really, really nascent industry. I mean, there were like maybe 10, 10 15 companies uh, working on it. So really like at its, at its infancy stage. Uh, and now we're talking about, okay, how we're going to bring this to market in this country, how we're going to do our, uh, how we're going to submit a, a dossier to the FDA or how it's going to be with EMA, EMA approval or European approval, how we're going to scale from, you know, lab to a 100-liter bioreactor to this 5,000-liter bioreactor. So we're really talking about how we're, bring, how we're going to bring this to the market. So, so five years ago, it was how are we going to make this? That was the question one. How can we make cultured meat in general? So, so people were trying to figure out how do cell lines grow, how does media work, and they were trying to make in a laboratory in a very small scale a piece of cultured meat. And I was like, okay, how are we going to bring this to consumers? So this whole discussion topic um, changed from how do we make it in the scientific sense to how can we actually bring it to consumers at large scale? And I think that is everybody's goal. 
and it has been everybody's goal for the past few years is your end goal is bringing this to consumers to feeding people with this product and i think this the interesting part here now is we're getting closer and closer to it um and everybody's excited to actually be able to see feel taste and sell their product um to consumers just transition from pure a scientific exercise of being able to create the product to actually being able to sell it, that, that, that transition is really most exciting for most people in the industry. And what is your biggest fear? I think the biggest fear or a challenge there is um, maybe people or governments just not understanding or not being able to, to understand um, the benefits of it why and why, why culture meat has, has its place in the market. Um, I've, I've never said, you know, everybody needs to eat culture meat. I've always been sort of saying in the future, I want to see it 30, 30, 30. So 30% conventional meat, 30% your vegan, vegetarian, 30% culture meat. So people need to have a choice. You know, it's not one thing that is the only option. Uh, and, and we need to make sure that people, governments uh, are understanding that it's a good product, it's safe, it's made in a, in a clean environment, and it's actually something that people shouldn't worry about because it's actually better for them, better for the animals, and better for the environment. I have a question uh, regarding your position in the, in the culture meat industry. How does your, like, your environment, like, I, and by this I mean your, your, your family, friends, people that probably maybe is not into this topic, react when they say like yeah i'm going to be working for making meat in a lab no like like how that sounds for the people yeah it's back i mean nowadays everybody that, that i know knows that i've, I've been working with, with this kind of products of course for a couple of years uh in different sort of contexts you know first as a as a founder uh now more as a as a consultant and advisory board member and investor um but people that I talk to, of course, are still, especially people that, that I haven't interacted with before, they're, they're still quite like, okay, what is that? Uh, it sounds interesting, but how does it work? And um, I think that's still for many people, it's an unknown. It's not exactly, they don't look, know exactly what it is. Um, but most people are quite quite interesting in, in hearing about it, in, in hearing the story, like, what is it? What does it do? Uh, how is it made? And 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 how how I got into it as well, and and I think it's it's just a nice innovation that that is happening, and I think it's something we need to do. Um, and it's just interesting, actually, just just imagining uh, this this process we've been going through the last maybe ten thousand, twenty thousand years, from you know hunters gatherers to small scale farms to more intensive farming to now being able to go towards culture meat. I mean, this, this sort of evolution it has made, uh, I think that's just so interesting. And, and actually being able to say, yes, we can extract cell from a, cells from an animal uh, and actually grow these uh, without having to slaughter all these animals and without having to feed them and everything else. I think that's just, that's just so cool to see and, and, to, and sort of diving into the technology and how it actually works is really, is really interesting. Then I have one thing, like you, you said you 2018, you started, uh, you, you've been a long way till now. There, a lot of things happened. You work on a very innovative product. And I'm, I'm wondering, 
new leaders for in the future that are also going to lead companies that will change or will, will make a big innovation? What advice can you give to them? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's quite hard. It's quite of a hard question, uh, but interesting. I mean, it depends a lot on on a few different things. Um, it depends on your own background, sort of where you come from. You come from academia, you come from science, or you come from business. It also depends on the company. I mean, a company that is founded today will need very different management than a company that's already running for five years or for ten years and has a few hundred employees, of course. So the individual sort of challenges of leaders um, will depend over time. So, for example, if I'm starting a company tomorrow in the culture meat space, um, you need a different leader than actually if you are a company that's almost commercializing the product and has a few hundred employees and now is looking to build a factory for $200 million. So it's different leaders needed, different kind of people needed. Um, and and that depends. So so a, a scientist, for example, might have a lot of fun, of course, developing a new product for a new company, um, but might be less motivated to lead a team of 100 factory employees, of course. So you really have to find a way there to, to leverage your capabilities and strengths and apply that to the right sort of situation. And I think that that's a, that's a really important thing. Um, and I see that for myself too, that I, I think it's more interesting, at least for me personally, to work in a slightly smaller company than work for very big corporations with thousands and thousands of employees. Because as a person, you'd feel you have a larger impact. Um, what you do matters more. Uh, but other people are more comfortable in other environments, of course. And looking uh, directly to the entrepreneurs uh, that are aiming to start a career in the sector of alternative protein and lab-grown meat, do you have any specific advice that would work for them? Um, yeah, just go for it. I mean, it's still, the industry has been going for a few years, of course, but still, like I said, an extremely nascent industry, there's still so many opportunities, there's there's so much room to come up with better products, newer products. Um, and they should just go for it. I mean, they should find some people um, to work together with, try to find some other potential founders, uh, use a few industry experts to, to get you going and, and, and just, you know, take a leap and, and try to make it. And there's, um, there's so much things that can be made better. There's so much opportunities. So they should just jump in, take a chance and, uh, and go for it. Yeah. Then we come to the tradition of this podcast. Uh, one of the traditions is that uh, our previous guest leaves a question to our next guest with a thing, a challenge or that they are facing or something that they're interesting about. And uh, our previous guest came up with the question as following. Do you think science is our only solution to solving growing populations and global warming or do a believe farmers in the more tradition sen traditional sense still have a role to play? Okay, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, so for sure, I mean, science is not the only solution to things. Uh, in some cases, of course, science can make things worse as well. Um, I think farmers and farming, generally speaking, um, is important. Uh, we need to still grow crops. Um, we still need to grow cows and pigs as well for, for feeding parts of the populations that don't want to eat culture meat. Uh, and science can be applied, of course, also to, to farming. I mean, there's also a lot of companies 
that don't work on culture meat, there are a lot of companies and scientists working on making current farming processes more sustainable as well. So it's not necessarily a, um, a, a science versus farmer kind of story. Uh, and there's different solutions by actually combining those different solutions to make the current processes better. So, I mean, I know there's companies working on actually reducing methane, methane, methane emissions from from cow burps and cow farts uh, that is one thing that is making things at least slightly better uh, and they can work with farmers to do so so it's a it's a mix of um of scientists making things better by by actual inventions and, and for example say cultured culture products it is a farmers actually um using more sustainable farming processes by rotating crops, for example, so their land has better yields. Um, and then it's also governments making decisions, putting incentives in the right place. And in the end, it's also just consumers making the right choice or making an informed choice, at least, on what they want to consume, what they think is best to consume. Um, and, and in the end, they're the ones buying the products, so they're the ones actually, in the end, deciding are we, which direction we're going. So I think it's uh, it's for sure the science is not the only solution. Uh, it is part of a very big sort of global equation of things that, that, that are combined in this entire sort of food ecosystem. Um, but without science, we can't get ahead of things, of course. Um, but without the farmers, we also will be nowhere. So it's, uh, it's one big collaboration where we should try to sort of focus on the on the on the on the benefits where we're actually you know bringing each other forward instead of the drawbacks and finally leo uh this is maybe a more personal and complicated question but what is your favorite food or dish uh, your favorite thing to eat you have to say something i don't know no i like it all yeah that's a tough one actually um uh, I mean, generally speaking, one of the reasons why I work sort of in uh, and I've been working in food tech a lot is because I love food and good food and I love to eat. Um, the favorite, oh, uh, this is really hard. So this is the hardest question so far, I think. Um, <laughs> you can say one of your favorites. It makes it one uh, of like not mature, one of one of your favorites. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, uh, the cuisines I prefer is always Italian or Thai. I think they have. In my mind, or my opinion, the best food in the world. Uh, for for Thailand, I would go for a nice um, crispy pork holy basil dish, something like that. In Italy, you would look at a nice um, seafood pasta, for example. Um, those are things that I think are nicest. Um, and it would be great, actually, if we could make these also with, with cultivated products. Then I uh, will say we came to an end. It was uh, truly very insightful for this, for, for the culture meat section. A lot of things that I didn't know about, to be honest. So thank you for that, uh, Leo. I just really appreciate it. And I think uh, we gave a good view also about the challenges we're facing and uh, opportunities, actually, that we have to point out more words to, I believe. and. Um, I wish you all the best, all the success. I'll keep forwarding and hopefully in 2030, I will have a 
the option to buy your products or at least where you worked on in the supermarket. <laughs>